Coming at you from New Jersey, the capital of misery and the place where metal forgot to die, this is Here Lies Metal, the podcast that brings you the origins, history, and culture of everything metal. I am Maledictus, and I will be your overlord for today and all of eternity. Welcome. To start things off, we almost had a concert review this week. However, there was a major snowstorm here, and it was unfortunately canceled. That concert, of course, was Exodus with Municipal Waste opening, which would have been a perfect accompaniment to our last two episodes on East Coast and West Coast Thrash, because as you, as you see, we have two bands there that were mentioned both on East Coast and West Coast Thrash. Exodus, of course, being an icon of the San Francisco scene and Municipal Waste being a newer edition, a new century revival thrash act of the East Coast. Both awesome bands. And I wish we got to go to this show because we were cleared for press access, which means I don't have to pay anything to get in. And I get to take some good pictures and put them on my website. And you get to see them. I would have wrote a review. But unfortunately, it is canceled, so... Good luck for me getting that show again the next time they come around. Uh, we also didn't bother going out to see Ross the Boss. I'm telling you about all the shows we didn't go to. That's going to be our concert review for this week. We did not see Ross the Boss. You know who Ross the Boss is. The guitarist, the founding guitarist of Man of War. Also founding guitarist of The Dictators. Awesome guitar player. Lives in Queens. Owns batting cages. Pretty down-to-earth cool guy. King of all metal. Ross the Boss. Ross Friedman is his name, and we did not get to see him. He played at St. Vitus last Friday, and we unfortunately did not get out to see that. So we are, Maledictus has been false metal, and the weather's been false metal recently, because it's pretending, preventing us from seeing some good shows, and I'm just too fucking tired to trek out to Brooklyn, to Greenpoint, to St. Vitus, to see Ross the Boss. Anyway, what's in the news today? Before we begin, I've decided to do the news. And these are a few stories that the metal media at large has been covering this week. So if you hadn't heard them already, get ready for the maledicted spin on these stories. In Iron Maiden news, apparently the band has settled their year-long dispute with their 1982 track, Hallowed Be Thy Name, from the Number of the Beasts album. And But the problem here was that some uh, loser prog rock guy that's probably needs money claims that Steve Harris and Dave Murray reproduced major parts of their song. Uh, the band was called Beckett in 1974. The song was called Life's Shadow. And supposedly Iron Maiden took or stole six lines from this. I've listened to both songs. I cannot find where these lines are. I was listening to both songs and the Beckett song isn't bad. It's a very solemn sort of song about one's own funeral but i can't find where iron maiden um copied them so if you could find this here lies metal gmail.com tell me where because I, I listened to both i cannot seem to find it the settlement was in the amount of one hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars, and it was paid to uh, the writers of the song which is brian quinn and robert barton who share writing credits on the song life's shadow now as a result of this iron maiden paying this you know pretty affordable fee they got off this bargain fee this bargain legal fee, they now get to play Hallowed Be Thy Name live again, which they weren't allowed to play for the past year. They stopped playing it. They might have announced that in their last sh uh, tour, if you saw them. Uh, they are now allowed to play this song again. So, awesome song, of course. 
once again, true metal prevails and false metal fails. Remember that true metal prevails, false metal fails. And that's what happens when you try to bring down the mighty Iron Maiden with your cheap lawsuit, uh, basically claiming that you wrote this song and they copied six lines from it. They really wanted $900,000, believe it or not. However, the settlement was only for 138, which barely covered the legal fees of the plaintiffs. So there you go. Fuck with Eddie and you find out. Prog rock guys. I love prog rock, but sometimes they get pretty annoying. Iron Maiden are major fans of prog rock. They know two ways about it. I'm sure they're big fans of this Beckett. I'm not familiar with them. I gotta listen to them. However, um, the song is rather epic. It's an epic dirge about one's own funeral. One person witnessing their own funeral from their point of view. So, anyway. So, let's get on with the news. There was a similar lawsuit where the band Spirit was suing Led Zeppelin over the similarity in their song um, Taurus versus uh, Stairway to Heaven, which was an exact copy However, I don't know if Spirit got any money from that. However, they were suing for some ridiculous amount of money. I guess which was deserved because obviously Stairway to Heaven probably generated a lot of money. And it was kind of a direct copy. But, you know, they, the weird thing is that Spirit decided to do this about like, I don't know, 40, 30, 40 years later. It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you stole our song. That just seems a little bit weird. It's like, oh, yeah, we need some money. We can get, I think it was somewhere in the tune of like $100 million, something ridiculous like that. However, Led's up and you did steal the song and you stole a lot of the songs actually. So, anyway, let's move on. You know what goes on in the news when I, I, I scan basically the metal news sites like Blabbermouth and Metal Sucks and um, Loudwire and all those big sites, and I see what they're talking about, and I just put my own spin on it. I, obviously, I don't find the news myself. I'm not really not that important. I, I don't have my ear to the ground, and no one's giving me uh, exclusive reports, breaking news. So I just take those stories, like this, and basically all these metal sites copy off of each other's news. They all have the same stories, and most of the stories involve bands going on tour. That's really, that's all that's going on. I was like, oh, Slipknot's going on tour again, or fucking Clusterfuck is going on tour again. And it's like, who gives a fuck? You know, I don't really care about what band is going on tour again. And so I'm not going to report that to you, unless it's someone big and ridiculous. Like, I know when, when Ozzy decides to go on tour, I reported that because it's Ozzy and he's big and ridiculous. And I have something ridiculous to say. So that, that means that particular thing is worth news. If anyone, you know, particular, some icon is going on tour, then, you know, maybe I consider that news. So there you go. Mushroom Head loses. Who the fuck is Mushroom Head? They look like a bunch of clown gigolo, juggalos. They look like the insane clown pod. They're, they're supposed to be edgy or something like that. Anyway, they have like 10. I'm looking at this picture of them. There's like 10 of these guys here, and they're all wearing these like venom looking masks, you know, like the comic book guy. And they keep leaving. So, sorry. Right, so, three of them left or whatever. So, you got, you, know, you got like eight of them left or so. What's the big deal? You know, like uh, you got enough. How many guys are going to pay? How, you get, I, how do you guys make any money if you've got like 10 members in this band? What do they all do? Is it like Slipknot where there's all these guys, just like these useless guys? Like, oh, this guy just beats on a garbage can. Whoa, you're real talented, brother. What else do we got here? Wow, look at this. Judas Priest in their current tour, the Firepower Tour, is going to play Saints in Hell for the first time. In their whole career, they've never played this song. I don't believe it. Well, that's going to be pretty cool. From, of course, the Stained Class album, the greatest Judas Priest album. Speaking of Rob Halford, I just read in the news that he wants to do a black metal album with Nurgle. Nurgle's in the news again. 
And I didn't know Nurgle made black metal. I mean, does he make sort of like this commercialized, uh, friendly version of black metal? I've got to listen to him. He's probably terrible. Anyway, but Judy, um, Rob Halford's a very open-minded guy. He rarely works with anyone. He works with a lot of bands that I can't stand. But, you know, Rob Halford does not, you know, he's not as judgmental as I am. He's uh, officially, he is authentically and faithfully a nice guy. So well, that should be interesting, Rob Halford doing a, a black metal album. I can't, you know, think either of these guys could do a black metal album. However, it should be at least funny. So that's the metal news for today, or lack there of it. And those are the concerts we did not go to this week. We'd like to thank all of our fans, as usual, Chris out in Long Island, for giving us more insights on the Thrash episode last week. Also giving us a nice new logo for the Facebook site, uh, Here Lies Metal at Facebook. And it looks pretty cool. It's, it's in that uh, Judas Priest had released in promotion of their latest album, which is okay, I guess. I haven't really listened to it, but a lot of people are telling me it's nothing to write home about. We will give it a listen here. I'm not going to do an official review but, you know, I'll tell you about it next week when I listen to it. And uh, they, um, for promotion purposes, they put out a generator, a Judas Priest logo generator. So you can type your own thing in there and your name comes out looking like how Judas Priest would. So yeah, he put it in there and for Here Lies Metal. So Here Lies Metal in the Judas Priest font. And, of course, Judas Priest is one of the greatest metal bands ever to exist. Essential Metal, of course. And this episode, of course, is an Essential Metal episode. We haven't done one of these in a while. So we're going to get to that in a minute. After I bullshit some more, I'd like to thank the rest of our fans, all the people that listen to us, and all the people that comment on us. Oh, Errata. We have an Errata from last, from no, from two episodes ago from the East Coast. My very lovely girlfriend, Samantha, who is a major fan of Hearthstone and World of Warcraft and all those, all those kind of things, all those fantasy MMO games. Uh, I had said that the band Lich King had taken their name and their logo and their artwork from Hearthstone, which is inaccurate. It is from World of Warcraft, the Lich King. Actually, the Lich King probably goes back a longer way in um, D&D lore or whatever. You, you um, D&D nerds out there could comment. I'm sure you will. You'll be like, no, the Lich King is actually from Dungeon Manual 14. But all right, so you guys can comment on that. However, I was corrected on that. I was wrong by using, by calling out Hearthstone incorrectly because the Hearthstone people get very militant. They don't like when you talk shit or get in wrong information about their trade. It is a trade. If you ever watch uh, Twitch and you watch some of these Hearthstone players, it's a pretty big deal. There's people making very large amounts of money. I find the game excruciatingly boring. I'm not a card person. There are not there is not enough explosions in that game. There's not enough metal in that game. So I'm not really into it. All right. So let's get on with this ridiculous episode on essential metal. This episode is going to be about Megadeth, who we did not mention last week. As I said, I gave you a little um, excerpt. I gave you a I gave you a little disclaimer at the end of last episode regarding the fact that Metallica or Megadeth were not mentioned in the Bay Area thrash scene and or the West Coast thrash scene for that matter since Megadeth is from Los Angeles um, because they are not thrash. And we'll go, we'll get into more detail on why Megadeth is not thrash in this episode because this episode of Essential Metal is on their iconic album. Which one? Rust in Peace. 1990's Rust in Peace. This is Megadeth's best album and in, in, not in my opinion. In fact, it is their best album and their best lineup. There is, I think that is an undisputed fact. I think every Megadeth fan can agree with that. This is the album that 
got me, that expanded my metal horizons. It took me away from the Metallica for a second. I realized Metallica was not the center of the universe. It was like, there's another band out there, and um, they're, they play pretty damn well, if not better than Metallica. Oh, yeah, and you can hear the bass. That's what I was amazed by when I was a kid. I was like, wow, you can hear the bass. Oh, my God, there's a bass. Wow, that's a, the basses in, in um, heavy metal sound pretty good because I didn't know what that sounded like listening to Justice for All a thousand times. They're both great albums, however. The uh, sound of Rust in Peace was quite amazing. And the songs are about, like, sci-fi and UFOs and things. So as a 12-year-old, I was really happy with the subject matter, you know, of it was a little down-to-earth. It was a little, little closer to that in mind of a 12-year-old, whereas, um, you know, I think Metallica was going for a more serious feel with Justin F Justice for All with their strange um, cryptic uh, right-wing politics, I think, that are in there. I'm not really sure how to interpret Justice for All. Um, well, I'm not sure where the politics are going on Justice for All, whether they're right or left or somewhere in between, or maybe they're just um, calling out things. I don't know, but never mind that. We're not talking about Justice for All, but that will also be an essential metal album. I know there's a lot of people are protesting out there. Just because you hate a band, people, doesn't mean they're not essential metal. Okay, you know, the Beatles are important, right? I know you hate them, but they're important for music. You could deny it all you want because you hate them. I know, it's your opinion. You hate Metallica. I know you hate Metallica. However, they're an important band. It doesn't fucking matter. Nickelback, on the other hand, sucks. And their music sucks. They're not important. People are like, oh, no, Nickelback's great. Why don't you listen to them? So I did. I was like, I'm going to listen to some Nickelback. And I can only get through about five minutes without being like, this is the worst shit I've ever heard in my life. Not only is the music shit, but the album artwork, the whole theme of the band is just complete generic shit. I mean, how can any band just go just be okay with this and it's not because they're from canada that is not an excuse there are plenty of great bands from canada i know the canadians are a little more tacky about things i don't know execution is as american americans i don't know we just do it with a little more grace i don't know the canadians are a little clunky about things but that's all right some of the music is great some canadian bands are great there's a lot of great canadian metal a lot of great we have to do an episode on canadian thrash bands because i'm going on a rant again about because nickelback caused this but yes they're terrible and if you look at their album album art cover it's like a picture of a car on a road like wow that's real edge uh, yeah that's a pretty rock and roll theme i'm gonna i'm on the open road in a in a big old camaro yeah that's that's what nickelback is about you know it's just these most generic themes so yeah they're terrible but ever i was saying before just because you hate a band does not mean they are not important hey i don't like new metal i'm gonna do an episode on new metal people it's gonna hurt me to do this episode however we've got to talk about new metal because it has a significant role in the evolution of metal and we talk about the evolution of metal whether we like it or not we must be well uh, you know i'm gonna say we must be objective but we're not i'm not really gonna be objective about it. i'm probably gonna talk shit about new metal the entire time we do an episode but so you can um enjoy that with me because i know none of you people out there are like new metal it just doesn't work you know, when you have Limp Biscuit and Linkin Park and uh, Marilyn Manson to, I mean, where did that come from? I don't know. But why am I getting into that? This episode is going to be on Megadeth, Rust in Peace. Let's get on with it for the fuck of sake. Megadeth with Rust in Peace, Essential Metal at the Here Lies Metal Podcast. Welcome once again to another episode of Essential Metal Every so often, you listen to a record that changes your life. Whether it was just released today or 30 years ago. However, as the years go on, it becomes more apparent that nearly everyone in the metal community shares your fascination with this particular title, elevating such a record 
to a universal language spoken and communicated by all those who have taken up metal as their very religion. It is this collection of immortal records that possess the power to be timeless in relevance among a specific genre or among metal at large. This is a collection of records displayed upon the black walls within the grand fortress of the metal gods in the underworld. And in this ongoing epic that we call metal, it is these very albums that I decree essential metal. It's 1983, and you were just fired from the band that would become the biggest metal band in history. But you're on a long, miserable ride back home from New York to Los Angeles. That's about a week in a Greyhound bus. You have plenty of time to think about things, most notably your revenge. And Mustaine vowed revenge by forming a band that was going to be faster and heavier than the band he was fired from, which, all you, which you all know was Metallica. On the bus trip back to Los Angeles, Mustaine found a pamphlet by California Senator Alan Cranston that read, The arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid no matter what the peace treaties come to. He had a name. He had a concept. But now he needed a band. Dave Ellison, or Junior, was Dave's downstairs neighbor who was playing Running with the Devil way too loud as Dave was suffering from a hangover. Dave went down to complain, of course, knocking on his door, telling the guy to shut up and realized, hey, this guy's a bass player. I think um, he could be used in my new band, Megadeth. So there it was. Dave and Dave Jr. met. Destiny was fulfilled, and the future was wide open. Dave now had a bass player for life. Not bad from the guy downstairs playing Running with the Devil too loud. Fast forwarding through three records, most notably, Peace Sells, was fairly successful, even landing a video on MTV years before Metallica ever did so. But let's skip over the revolving door lineup changes, the drug binges, the Dave rages, and let's get to the Essential Metal. Now, of course, this Essential Metal album episode is about Megadeth's 1990 album, Rust in Peace, probably their most iconic and most important album. But here's what this album meant to me. This album was in heavy rotation in my Sony tape Walkman when I was in 8th grade, about the age of 13 in 1990. In a world of Metallica, Megadeth was a welcome alternative. All I was listening to at the time was pretty much Metallica. That, that was my life, listening to my Metallica tapes. Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, Justice for All, Kill em All. The Black Album wasn't actually out yet, and we were all eagerly awaiting this next Metallica album. It seemed like forever, and it wouldn't be till at least another year until we got it. So Megadeth was a good in-between point, and what I heard in Megadeth, I really liked. And I liked it more than Metallica in many ways. One very unique and significant detail that I found in listening to Rust in Peace was you can actually hear the bass. Playing Justice for All six million times by the age of 13, I didn't really know what a bass sounded like for the most part. And I was like, what's that? What's that bright tone thing that accompanies the guitar? Oh, that's the bass, and I like it. It made me want to play bass. I think it was Rust in Peace that made me actually pick up a bass. 
it made me want to pick up a bass as well as my guitar. I knew the guitar parts on Rust in Peace were way too complicated. I remember actually having the tablature book. I had, of course, all the Metallica tablature books, and most of them were playable, except, of course, for Justice for All. That was not playable. I, I couldn't believe how difficult that was. But Rust in Peace made Justice for All look easy. I couldn't play. There was nothing in there I could play. That's when I realized Megadeth was deserving of a lot more credit than they were given. They were the underdog, and they deserved a lot more. It was from that point on, I would be a major Megadeth fan, as well as Metallica. I had two favorite bands now. Let's talk about the actual album, Rust in Peace. Released in 1990, this was a, a year short of the great metal crash that we had talked about in the last episode. Keeping the fading flames of metal burning in the unforgiving 90s, along with their partners in the big three, it would be soon, uh, what we talked about in the last episode, of course, the Great Clash of the Titans tour, which would feature Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer. As we noted, that ushered in the great crash of thrash and metal in general, you might say. It's really when it just got too big, which happens with any scene. Now, Rust was a worthy response to rival Metallica's complex and progressive justice for all in both musical complexity and sophistication. Rust is another perfect example of evidence on my controversial theory on how Megadeth is not thrash. If you listen to the album, it becomes very clear. In fact, I might say, if we have to compare the two bands, Megadeth and Metallica, as we mentioned on the last episode, that Megadeth and Metallica were not part of the West Coast thrash scene. They were a heavy influence on the thrash scene. However, I do not consider either of them thrash bands. I would say Metallica is, if you had to rate them, I would say they're a little bit more thrashy than Megadeth even. Megadeth is just pure, complex speed metal. Is a major influence on a lot of the complex speed metal bands we have today, the, the revivalist speed metal bands we have so many of today. And, and you could really thank Megadeth for that. It's bands like, like Skeleton Witch, Ex Mortis, like Archer. These guys are very influenced by Megadeth, I would say. Dave, as before, plays his guitar with chaotic rage and tells snarling tales of anti-establishment politics, drug problems, nuclear war, the environment, and occult magic. Still eternally raging the day he was fired from the band that would be the biggest metal band ever. This is what Rust in Peace is really about. It's Dave's rage on full, continuing, after many lineup changes from the beginning. This particular lineup would be, however, of their most stable and greatest lineup ever. Let's get into that. As you know, Megadeth has been a musical chair of band lineups since their debut album of Killings by Business and Business is Good. Recently, Megadeth had just, on, upon the making in 1990, upon making Rust in Peace, they had just dismissed Chuck Bayer, their drummer, and guitarist Jeff Young. This was, of course, they were, of course, were featured in the So Far, So Good, So What album released in 1988. Lead guitarist Young's dismissal, rumored to be the result of Mustaine's suspicion that he was having an affair with Dave Mustaine's current girlfriend at the time, which, of course, Young denied. So a little bit of band politics there, band drama. Now, as you probably heard, uh, after Young was dismissed, there were, of course, a lot of guitar players from most notable bands in the, in the run for 
being Megadeth next guitarist, enter a young guitar virtuoso by the name of Diamond Daryl. Mustaine was interested in this guitar player from a little known band from Texas called Pantera. After hearing the album Power Metal, Dave Mustaine was obviously very interested in employing the guitar talents of Diamond Daryl, as he was called back then, before he discovered weed. If you heard Power Metal, like this is not really, this is their first album with Phil Alsamo. It's it's really the first album with Pantera's official lineup. There was, a, of course, a major change in 1990s Cowboys from Hell. However, Power Metal, you could really hear that Dimebag is something special on guitar. It's very clear on that album. And when you listen to it, you're like, whoa, who is this guitar? That's what I remember when I heard Cowboys from Hell. They used to play on WSIU constantly when it came out in 1990. And I was like, whoa, what is with, the, you know, the first thing I noticed is like this guitar player, this guy is something. And I think that he really took the world by storm in Cowboys from Hell. However, Dave, you know, most of us never heard power metal back then. They, they kind of swept that one under the rug even back then. So David probably heard him from power metal and was like, whoa, we've got to have this guy. However, Dimebag could not join Megadeth because he, of course, only travels with his brother, Vinnie Paul. And, of course, Megadeth had, of course, recruited a drummer, which we'll get into next. However, Dave told them we could not accommodate you. And, therefore, Dimebag had to decline if he could not take his brother with him. This is the quote. I'm going to get into the, into the Dave Mustaine voice. I called up Daryl and asked him if he wanted to play with us. And he said, yeah, man, I love to play with you. I got to bring my brother. And I went, uh, okay. What's your brother do? And he thought that maybe Vince was Daryl's guitar tech or something like that. And he goes, no, he's my drummer. And I went, oh, shit. Well, I hired Nick Menza. And he went, well, and I can't come. And I went, ah, fuck, okay. Well, nice talking to you. Nice talking to you again. And later I was thinking... Man, if I would have just hired both of them, we would have had the greatest band ever. So yes, that's the hist that's the story on, according to Dave Mustaine, why Dimebag Darrow could not join the Rust in Peace lineup, which would have been very interesting. However, doesn't mean they wouldn't get a great guitar player. Now, interesting enough, other guitar players were in line for this. Other guitar players were actually tried out for this position, and, and that includes Jeff Waters from Annihilator, Lee Altis of Heathen, we mentioned Heathen in the last episode, Eric Mayer of Dark Angel, which we also mentioned. I was, as you see, the thrash scene in, in California in the West Coast is very ancestral, and here it goes again, looking for some of the greatest guys in the thrash metal scene during that time. Um, according to Rumor, this is a funny one, even Slash from Guns N' Roses was jamming with Megadeth. However, obviously, all of these potential guitar players declined to join Megadeth. Now, David seen an album in his manager's office. It was a solo album from a guy named Marty Friedman. It's called Dragon's Kiss. And you could find this album, of course. And the cover art was silly, but the playing was rather impressive. So Mustaine asked him, of course, to audition. And and the guy, of course, killed. He'd never heard anything like Marty Friedman. Of course, for such a uh a fairly unknown guitar player. His skills are really what made Rust in Peace. He was hired. Marty Friedman was hired into the Rust in Peace lineup, and history would be made. However, before Marty was hired, 
you know, in Angry Dave, of course, didn't really like the way he looked. Now, this, one thing about Dave, he's not your average thrash guy. Of course, I know Megadeth is not thrashers. However, he's, he's more of almost like a, a very angry hair metal guy in a way. He's very concerned about image, Dave Mustaine. Hence his many MTV appearances. We'll get into that soon. Dave Mustaine went for MTV long before Metallica did, or any bands in that scene did, if you noticed. <clears throat> there was a video for Peace Sells But Who's Buying in 1986 on MTV. Metallica didn't have any videos. Most thrash bands didn't have videos, or bands in that scene didn't have videos on MTV at that time. Dave Mustaine was all over MTV with his Rock the Vote stuff. We'll get into that later. But there you go. The guy likes the camera, okay? What can I tell you? He likes his image. When Metallica first hired him, they were astounded that the guy had his own photographer. So he is not your average guy. So Dave is a guy that's worried about image, and he did not like the image of Marty Friedman. Let's continue. He looked at Marty and said, this guy kind of looks like a poser. I mean, honestly, I love the little guy, but he looked like a poser to me. His hair is two different colors. Of course, that, of course, offended Dave. He didn't, you know, he's like, you don't, you don't look like you should be in Megadeth. And, you know, you got to look like you should be in Megadeth. So and it's important, you know, being a, having an image in a band is very important. That's one thing uh, kind of dawned on me recently playing in music again. It's like, why do these bands suck? Not because they suck, because look at them. They, they go up there on stage and they don't look like they want to be up there. When you see a band, you know, at a bar, some shitty bar band, you know, when a shitty bar band is a shitty bar band, they could be playing great, but a bunch of guys in jeans and hockey shirts, you know, this is a New Jersey thing. Maybe this happens by you too. You look at these guys and you're like, these guys don't really fucking look like they want to be up there. You know, they look like, you know, they just came off of work and, you know, and there's a, hey, and there's a scene for that. There's a, there is an appeal for that. But if you, if you want to be successful, that's not going to work. I promise you that's never going to work. So if you just want to play fine, but if you're looking for success, if you're looking to be successful at, at music, that's not going to work. And I think Dave is well aware of that. Now, of course, Marty Friedman was hired, but what about the drummer? Who did he hire as a drummer? A virtually unknown Nick Menza. Nick Menza was Megadeth's current drum tech for Chuck Bayer. And Chuck Bayer obviously had to leave Megadeth due to certain problems, certain health problems. So Nick Menza had filled in for Chuck in the past. In 1989, when Chuck was, of course, let go from Megadeth, Nick Menza was asked by Dave Mustaine to join the band officially. What a good choice it was. I can't believe this guy was only a drum tech playing that well. It's amazing who, you know, doesn't really get in the spotlight. No, so the lineup is complete. We have Megadeth's best lineup ever. Now, let's look at the album. Let's focus on the cover art, of course, by the famous Ed Repka, who we have discussed in the past, uh, artist of many a, th a thrash and metal album metal in general he has a very distinct look in his albums there's always a good there's always a very uh, direct engagement from the character from the main character in his pictures they're usually engaging with the person viewing the painting and and it's a very effective metal album it's a very effective cover for a metal album to have that it's no different with vic rattlehead he's always looking at you he's doing something he also of course did the cover for peace sales i don't think he designed vic rattlehead of course However, he also did the cover, Megadeth's cover for Peace Sells with Who's Buying. Ed Repka created the artwork, which depicts a visual of the second track on the album from the song Hangar 18. That's what Hangar 18 seems to be about. It seems to be the cover song, even though it's not the title track. It is the cover. It is the artwork song. The image depicts the band's mascot, 
Vic Rattlehead standing over an alien corpse with world leaders looking on. You could recognize loosely President George H.W. Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, German President Richard von Weltsacker, Japanese Prime Minister Toshiki Kiafu, and British Prime Minister John Major. These were world leaders in 1990. And you could see them looking on in the background as Vic is sort of trying to sell them this alien or something. They're going to be in a bidding war over this alien corpse, some kind of a weapon. Now, the lyrical themes, of course, in Rust and Peace are very specific. They're, they're really a mix of a lot of things, but there are a lot of new concepts as well for a Megadeth album. Megadeth albums were always very political. You know, they were about drugs a lot of times. They're about sex, but, you know, which is... Not your average metal band, really. Not your average, you know, thrashy band, you might say. The concept for Rust and Peace came from an interesting place. Mustaine was speeding home one day on the freeway, and as he was tailgating this guy, driving like an angry maniac, and get out of the way! You're driving too slow! But he noticed a bumper sticker, and usually you can notice bumper stickers when you're tailgating someone so close, and the bumper sticker was on the back of some some hippie guy's car in California, and the bumper sticker read, may all your nuclear weapons rust in peace. That's where he, of course, he was like, there you go. That's a good concept for an album. All right, I think I'll pass this guy now. Additionally, the album features multiple lyric themes about religion, politics, and warfare, as well as Mustaine's personal drug issues with alcohol and drugs and his addictions. Also involves... UFO conspiracy theories, and these were, of course, from Nick Menza. They, these actually didn't, believe it or not, these did not come from Dave Mustaine's mind. These are um, the fantasies and the ideas of Nick Menza. It also features a song, a half of a song, about the Marvel character, The Punisher, featured uh, at the time, which probably played by Dolph Lundgren. We'll get into that. We'll get into all the songs specifically. Now, the production of Rust in Peace was, of course, made to rival that of Metallica's Justice for All, as I was saying. They wanted to have a very progressive, complex album. They wanted to go all out. Even though the future of metal was uncertain, no one gave a fuck. We're going all out with this album. We're going to show everyone how good we can play. Since Mustaine was striving to write more multifaceted songs that featured multiple rhythm and tempo shifts, of course, prog rock almost, and Friedman was the guy for that. This guy was the guy you needed for Rust in Peace. I imagine Dimebag would have worked as well. However, I think Friedman has a little more classy sophistication than an all-out, you know, drunk fest of uh, Dimebag's playing. I think he's more of a clean and disciplined player than uh, Dimebag. He's not a groovy player. He's more of a precise and graceful player, I would say. So I think that worked very well for Rust in Peace. Now... Megadeth recorded this album in a studio owned by, this is funny, by Captain and Tennille called Rumbo Recorders. So that's kind of a funny thing how it's like, what does Captain and Tennille have to do with Rust and Peace? This, they own the studio where it was recorded. Now, the original producer, Dave Jordan, didn't last. And he was replaced by a guy named Mike Klink, who was actually preparing to enter the studio with Guns N' Roses and to record, of course, the famous User Illusion. So this guy's like, why am I wasting time with this? Guns N' Roses is about to call it their next huge album. And everyone, of course, at this time was waiting for this mythical Guns N' Roses album. Even though it was really only a couple of years since Appetite for Destruction, there was a super hyped double album that everyone was talking about in 1990, and it wasn't out yet, so it would be out the next year. 
However, this guy was waiting to do that. He's like, I, you know, you guys are just on the side. I am here to record Guns N' Roses. So, however, he made sure that everyone in Megadeth knew that he would be gone as soon as Axl Rose called. So they had to get this thing done, which, you know, didn't really make the band feel too good. It's like, wow, this guy has his priorities on Guns N' Roses, obviously. Fortunately for Megadeth, they finished the album and finished tracking before Mike Klink had a call from Axl Rose. And believe it or not, it was Mustaine and Max Norman from the last Essential Metal episode we did on Ozzy Osbourne. He also did the engineering for that album. So here he is again, and he would do the final touches on the record, which made it sound so great. So Max Norman again. That about concludes all of the details, all the convoluted details for the making of Rust in Peace. Let's now get into the fun part, into the actual album, Megadeth's 1990 Rust in Peace. Here we go. Let the playlist begin. Rust in Peace by Megadeth. This song is called Holy Wars, The Punishment Due. Now, it's actually kind of two songs in one about two completely different things, although they flow into each other very well. The first part of the song is called Holy Wars. And it was inspired by a mishap Dave had in Northern Ireland um, a few years prior to the recording of this album. Now, lyrically, the song is about the Northern Ireland conflict, not some sort of Middle Eastern conflict, as many might think. That's why he says it might be your homeland. It started when Dave had caught someone selling a bootleg Megadeth t-shirt in Ireland. And of course, Dave had a, some words with this Irish lad, and obviously because that's how a band stays alive out there. It's merch, especially Megadeth at that point in their careers. It was the merch that really kept them alive. David confronted this guy and said, hey, you can't sell bootlegged t-shirts. And the guy said, oh, you can't stop us, lad. It's for the cause. The cause? Dave was like, what the fuck is the cause? Like, well, no, lad, it's the IRA. Of course, Dave doesn't really, like he says in the song, I don't understand this. Something I don't understand, and he doesn't understand. He admits he does not understand it because the events that happened next would prove that Dave did not understand what was going on in Northern Ireland. And as the story goes, Catholics are against the Protestants, of course, and the Protestants get the Catholics is a big clusterfuck. It used to be anyway. During the show, he played the song Anarchy in the UK and said, this goes out to the cause. Of course, all hell broke loose when he did this. So, they had to be escorted out of Northern Ireland in an armored bus to save their own lives. That's what kind of riot it caused just by saying something like that. So it inspired Dave to write the song, Holy Wars, Punishment Due, because of the conflict in Northern Ireland and how Megadeth almost got killed because of Dave's big mouth. The second part of the song, this part, is called The Punishment Due, and of course it is about the Punisher, the Marvel character, the Punisher, which was probably played by Dolph Lundgren at the time. I think it was a Punisher movie back then. I can't remember exactly when it came out, but he was obviously back in the day when Marvel movies did not have big budgets and they were kind of cheesy. However, this song is clearly, if you listen to the words, if you read, ever read the comic, it's like, oh yeah, that's about the Punisher. So never mind about the subject matter. The musicianship in this song, and this song of course was a video on Headbangers Ball. I remember it would be played constantly. This was in a time when you were hoping Metallica's One came on, but however, this song would be played a lot more. 
because it's a much better song. It also features Megadeth skydiving at one point. I think they were kind of into that back then. They were kind of into that extreme sports thing. But why am I talking about the video? The musicianship in this song is amazing. I mean, this is mostly Marty Friedman here doing all of this guitar work, the crazy solos, the, the vicious and chaotic solos. Well, you could, dip, you could actually tell the difference between Dave's and Marty's solos. Marty's solos are, of course, very graceful, whereas Dave's are just brutally, viciously raging. And, of course, Dave finishes the song with one of his rage solos. But, wow, this song really made me want this album. I saw the video a million times, and I was like, wow, this is a really great song. This is like nothing I heard before. So, Megadeth with... Holy Wars, The Punishment Do. Alright, let's move on. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is like a D minor. These are like, it's like a group of four D minor chords. It's really just a different, um, it's like different uh, qualities of a D minor chord. And if you play this in arpeggios, what is it? It sounds like Call, from Call of Cthulhu, which Dave Mustaine wrote, of course, for Metallica. And it's really the same song, just played fast. It's a pretty good chord progression. It works pretty well. It's pretty metal. Whoever invented it, you know, it's probably done some classical music, I would imagine. Dave, of course, seemed to always gravitate towards that kind of uh, sound. So, now, the song's called Hangar 18, of course. And it is about UFO Area 51 conspiracy theories. It's, you could say it's a musical representation of the cover art, which it absolutely is, of Ed Repka's cover. I vaguely remember an MTV contest on Headbangers Ball back in 90 or 91 um, about, specifically about the song, because this song also had a video. Megadeth could be making videos for almost every, for, for many of the songs on this. So they were really big with MTV. And anyway, the contest involved you hanging out with Megadeth and going down that road in the middle of nowhere, Nevada, to stake out Area 51. But actually, I heard that actually never happened. They just, you just kind of hung out. With, I don't even know that. They probably didn't even hang out with you. But I remember that contest. And I remember like, wow, you could hunt UFOs at Megadeth? I remember as a 12-year-old thinking, whoa, that would be awesome. It was actually Nick Menzer that came up with these alien conspiracy theory. It wasn't really Dave. You would think it'd be Dave as a guy that shows up on Alex Jones uh, on a you know somewhat frequent basis these days. You would think it would be Dave, but Dave actually isn't the crazy one. It is Nick Menza who was interested in this. Actually, the song is specifically about not actually Area 51. It is about actually where they supposedly brought the wreckage of the UFOs, which was in Dayton, Ohio, at Wade Patterson Air Force Base. Hangar 18 is actually there. It is not in Area 51, as many people think. This song, of course, more music virtuosity here by Megadeth, this four-piece band of amazing musicians, the greatest lineup they ever had. This is prog rock at its best. This is modern prog rock, you know, masked as a metal band. And it's not thrash. Have we figured out that Megadeth is not thrash by this point? Maybe they had a few thrashy songs in their first three albums. Most notably, probably their 1985 release, uh, Killings My Business and Business Is Good. However, the thrash kind of went out pretty quickly because Megadeth is just too damn good for thrash. So let's move on to the next song. This song is called Take No Prisoners. And it was described as Dave Mustaine's attempt to make the most obnoxious song he can on the album. And of course, the song is about prisoners of war, which also served as a valve to let off some steam with 
um, Dave's frustrations with his previous Megadeth lineup featuring Jeff Young and Chuck Bayer, who, um, of course, De Jeff Young tried to uh, have sex with Dave's girlfriend, apparently, according to Dave. Dave's like, he tried to. I remember, I remember an interview with Dave, and he's like, he was hitting on my old lady. And you know, Dave doesn't like when that happens. So, so Dave was just fed up. He was still angry. He was still raging over this now. And of course, he was raging about Metallica as well. He was raging about that. I was finally fed up with all this shit. I had to put up with Jeff and Chuck. And I was having so much fun with Nick and Marty. I started writing the most obnoxious song I could think of. And that's how this song came about. Quote from Dave Mustaine. Every time I do a quote, I'm going to do it in Dave Mustaine voice. The snarling, nasally Dave Mustaine voice that you all love. Now, Dave also said in this song, I did not take into account that Marty was Jewish and I was singing about Panther Divisions. Having him sing the backups was not cool. So Dave's very sensitive. Dave's not an asshole. He, he really cares about people's feelings. Now that I think about it, I do, however, say my favorite line was always to tell new bands that the ending of the song, take no prisoners, take no shit from anyone. Sort of a, um, you could say, the mantra of Dave's career. Take no shit. Take no prisoners. Take no shit. Take no prisoners. On the Rust in Peace album, most obnoxious song on the album. Next we have Five Magics. Interesting fact, Marty Friedman actually used one of Slash's picks that was left around the studio. So he had the magic of Slash apparently to play these very difficult riffs. And of course, like I said, having the tablature of this album, all of these songs were completely impossible to play on guitar. Now, this song seems to be what about occult magic from my interpretation. I really can't find any info on what this song is actually about, so I'm going to interpret it. It's funny that, you know, Dave claims he used to practice occult magic and black magic and put hexes on people. I used to put hexes on people. But ironically, Dave would reject all these practices eventually and give in to Christianity. Yes, he became a born-again Christian. We'll get into that later. And there's certain songs he doesn't like to do now. Like, he won't even do Anarchy in the UK because it says, I am the Antichrist, which um, seems a big deal, but that is obviously very offensive to Dave's new take on life, his new philosophy for some reason. Um, apparently, he also has a problem with touring with King Diamond. I don't know why. I mean, I think no real Satan worshippers out there are really Satan worshippers. Actually, Satan worshippers aren't even really Satan worshippers, which we'll probably go over one day. It's really just kind of a big trolling movement to troll Christianity and other serious religions. They're, it's really more of an atheist movement, and all the Satan stuff is kind of just to piss you off. So, anyway. But, obviously, Dave takes this stuff very seriously. He's a boring Christian, and he is a regular on the Alex Jones show for some reason. Well, not a, I wouldn't say a regular, but he appears sometimes, and it's really um, just very ironic how he used to seem to be representing these kind of liberal politics back in the 90s for MTV. Like, he was doing the whole Rock the Vote thing. I guess we'll go into it more later. But it seems to me he was like saying, hey, vote for Bill Clinton, everyone. Vote George H.W. Bush out of That's basically what he was saying. He seemed to be very angry. In fact, he even told how he met Bill Clinton after he, after he won the presidency. And he gave him, Bill, his token. Um, his sobriety token, which, you know, I don't think they've um, had succeeded in yet. But I think they give you a token when you're like an alcoholic. And he gave it to the president. You know, he's like, look what I have. You know, this means a lot to me. And, he said Bill Clinton just took it from him. He's like, oh, thank you. And he put it in his pocket. That's a funny story. Funny story from Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine has come a long way. Anyway, why are we talking about this song? Listen to these solos. Holy shit. 
That is crazy. Like, this whole album is... How do they do this? How can you just focus and play like this? I don't know. It's just, it's out of control. And there really is, there will never be another negative album like this. It really, this lineup, and this lineup would go for a while, which I found really amazing that this lineup would last for as long as it did. Time signature changes in this. You know, and, and, and one thing, like I said before, you can hear the bass in these songs, which really I found fascinating at the age of 12 because I didn't really know what that was supposed to sound like. You know, I just was used to bands really drowning out their bass, especially, you know, the M band. On top of these genius arrangements, I've got to say the lyrics are rather genius as well. Five Magics from the Rust and Peace album. Let's move on. This is a really cool bass intro by Dave Ellison. And that's the thing, they would give this guy bass intros. They would let him really dominate a lot of the songs, which was just unheard of in that other band. It was never gonna happen. Space, this band was so bass heavy. And of course, Dave Ellison has that very bright, uh, very compressed, a little bit chorusy bass sound, which I used to like at the time. I, you know, of course I would never have my bass sound like that. These days I prefer a dirty and tuned down sound. The more warmer sound, more natural sound, you know, if whether distorted or not, you know, this guy has his sound very clean and precise, and he still does that today, and he was explaining why Dave Ellison's a fan of having a very clean bass tone, and it works, it cuts through. Either way, one more great underrated bass player, Dave Jr. Ellison, doing the intro for Poison Was The Cure, which is this song. Now, Poison Was The Cure was ranked as the number five song of the most 10 complex riff from uh, Guitar World, and it's no lie. And of course, this is the part they're talking about. If you listen to that guitar work, it's just a clusterfuck of rageful guitar chaos by Dave Mustaine and Marty Friedman playing together. They're playing this riff, what seems to be in sort of a harmony. Um, so, and it's not just a regular riff, it's kind of more of a lead part that they're both doing, backed up by the bass. So just that part alone, I can't imagine how you would play that. That's the riff, that's the main riff. So there you go, figure that out. You know, this was the album that pretty much made me pick up a guitar, and it made me pick up a bass as well. It made me really want to play music. Now this song, of course, is about Dave's heroin addiction, and how he used methadone to suppress that jerk habit he had at the time. He ended up getting addicted to the cure, to the methadone, so poison was the cure. So, it was like the bass, taste me! to make us laugh here, it kind of had, you know, very double entendres, I like, wonder what he means by that, so, but yes, it's actually just about tasting methadone, and of course Dave had many problems, and would have many problems, uh, it's amazing this guy is still alive, still not thrash people, I can't find a thrash yet, there's nothing thrashy about this song, it's just too damn complex, this album especially, alright, let's move on to the next song. This song, called Lucrezia, was inspired by the 15th century femme fatale, Lucrezia Borgia. Now, she was the daughter of Pope Alexander VI, had a reputation of being a deadly woman and inspired many artists with her vile acts. Rumored in cases of incest, poisoning, murder on her part were legendary. 
Lucrezia Borgia. Seems like she seems like she should be the subject of many doom metal songs as well. Just they like to have the concept of an evil woman. Anyway, let's let's listen to this song actually instead of trying to interpret the lyrics that we can hardly understand. And of course, this album is not all super lightning fast. This song has a bit of a groove to it, just a big departure from the rest of the album. It's almost sort of like a hard rock kind of groove. Of course, Dave Mustaine's influences come from a lot of hard rock bands, like the Scorpions. He's a major fan of UFO, a devout disciple of Michael Shanker. He comes from that sort of upbringing. He's not really as a metal guy as you think. He's a little more complex. He's a little more sophisticated than that. Dave is full of mysteries and surprises, one might say. Almost like a very angry hair metal guy. I always interpret him that way. He's just not your average uh, West Coast dirt bomb thrasher. A little bit more than that. You know, Dave would always go up there and wear a white shirt. You know, he'd wear this like white button-down shirt all the time. He's like, oh, everyone always dresses in black. And he, he was always in this white shirt. So it always kind of looked different. You know, he almost looked like some sort of, you know, prog metal guy up there or something by his look. And by the way he plays, that statement would be rather accurate. Lucrezia, let's move on to the next one. This is intro, but Dave liked to do a lot of rageful palm muting, harmonic palm muting like you hear there. And these riffs, I mean, the whole album is basically full of these guitar runs. They're not just simple riffs, they're just almost like solos in their own way. They're just not, they just don't make an album. I hate to sound like an old man, but they just don't make albums like this. Nobody, not even Negative makes albums like this. Their new album was pretty good, but it wasn't this. This is just too much. The great thing about Megadeth is they are very unique in their sound. There are no other bands in that scene that really sound anything like them. Not Slayer, not Metallica. They're going beyond that sound. Now, the solo in this song, played by Marty, was said to have blown Dave's mind. And when you hear it, you'll be amazed by it as well. If you haven't heard it. Marty Friedman said in 2002, when I was finished with the solo on this one, Mustaine came into the studio and listened to it down once and turned around without saying a word and shook my hand. Dave said, whoa, that was awesome. In that moment, I felt I was truly the guitar player for his band. Of course, you were Marty Friedman. Being part of a band with amazing talents on their own, Marty Friedman only added to that, making these guys a super amazing band. Um, but Marty Friedman is even probably too good for these guys, we'll find out. Really complicated. As most of the songs on this record are. I don't know what this song's about, I have no idea. Tornado of Souls. Somebody could please elaborate what this song is about. Now I always do research and try to find the littlest tidbits on as to what the meaning of songs are if I cannot interpret them myself. But I just don't know what this song is about. PureLawsMetal at gmail.com. Tell me what this fucking song is about. Anyway, this song is such a departure from contemporary metal songs of that era, and it's obvious why this album is essential metal. Dave's vocals also have a unique whining to them in a way. Like my, a friend of mine said, um, his quote is like, looks like Dave Mustaine is, is just permanently crying ever since he got let go from Metallica. He has that look on his face like he's crying. He's like, I can't believe Metallica fired me. I'm gonna show them even though it's been 10 years, I'm still angry about it. Yes, Dave is simply a fireball of burning rage coming towards you like a, like a missile that's not gonna stop until it finds what it's looking for. And I think Dave finally has found what he's looking for since I think this fire has gone out in a way, maybe in a good way. I think he's calmed down in his old age, you know, 
to become a born-again Christian. Maybe went a little too far, but hey, Dave, whatever does it for you, if that keeps you off the junk, then uh, go with God. I think his son, his one son, Justice, his name is Justice Mustaine. He's like a music producer, a music manager, uh, something like that. And he, has a, he has a daughter called Electra. I think it's Electra. And she's like some sort of pop singer or trying to be. So something like Dave is, he's a go-getter. I mean, nothing is good enough for him, which is a good attitude to have. I mean, I mean, Megadeth was hugely successful, but he looks at Metallica still and goes, well, they sold, you know, however many albums they sold. Say it was 50 million. He's like, I sold 10 million. They sold 50. Why can't I have that? It's a good attitude to have. Like, he's never like, this is good enough. He's like, no, I want to be the best. And he just can't get it. It's great to be there. It's a great thing to chase, Dave. He's aiming for the right goals, that Dave Mustaine. Inspiration to us all. Let's move on to the next song. This next song is called Dawn Patrol. And when Dawn Patrol is performed live, believe it or not, Dave actually steps off the stage and lets Dave Jr. and whoever the current drummer is right now do their thing well dave actually sings the words for this song off stage so they're giving it this eerie kind of feel with weird lights and stuff now this is a nuclear holocaust or environmental holocaust bass driven theme sort of a a warning to the future it's funny how i imagine if dave mustaine still has these environmental concerns as today he's kind of an alex jones kind of guy so <clears throat> I admit, when, it, when I was 12, when I first heard this, I was really all about this song because, like I said, listening to Justice For All, and I'll keep saying this, this song was, didn't just have bass, it was the bass. So I was like, wow, this is the bass. I like the bass. I was learning what the bass was. I didn't know what it was before that. And Megadeth really didn't have any problems with giving everyone an equal mix in their recordings. People like to call Dave Mustaine an asshole, but is he really an asshole? I think he's uh, really the good guy here when it comes to um, respecting the talent of his fellow bandmates, which he does. In fact, I think Dave Mustaine prefers to prefer surround himself with talent, especially guitar players that are better than him. He always has a lead guitar player that's actually better than him. And I think that's how Dave wants it. He doesn't mind not being the best musician. For a guy that has an ego, he really cares about his success of his band as opposed to just Dave. Next we have Rust in Peace, Polaris. This of course is the title track. And of course this was a song that and as well as the album was inspired by a bumper sticker. Now, I'll tell you this story again in more detail. Dave Mustaine was driving home from Lake Eisenor when inspiration struck. And it came in the form of a car he was tailgating. Can you picture just angry, rageful Dave Mustaine driving on the road with Dave Mustaine road raids going, everybody get out of my way. Here's a quote from Dave Mustaine. I was racing down the freeway and I saw this bumper sticker on the car and it said, one nuclear bomb could ruin your whole day, obviously. And I looked on the other side and it said, may all your nuclear weapons rust in peace. And I'm going, rust in peace. Damn, that's a good one. So, of course, I really dug this song, the title track, a lot when I first heard this album. I had a great hook, 
and it really is the perfect topper to this album, the perfect end to this album. And <clears throat> of course, it's the ultimate thrash theme, Nuclear Weapons. However, it was done more intelligently than your average Exodus or Testament song. Again, this is why these guys aren't thrash. You're kind of taking this thing to a sophisticated level, this kind of war thrash sound. And that double bass drum really just really went well with this tone. That really powerful Nick Menza double bass drum, which I always really liked. It always just made me think of, Megadeth is the band that always made me think of something called War Thrash, even though they're not thrash, especially in the Rust in Peace album, a lot of war themes, as well as some of their previous albums. There's always something to do with politics and war. There's always that theme there, a theme that could be well represented by an Ed Repka cover, of course. Interestingly enough, it seems like Megadeth's unofficial symbol for this album was like that radiation symbol to go along with the whole nuclear missile Polaris thing. This symbol would adorn the double bass drums of Nick Menz's drum set. This is Rust in Peace. And once again, folks, this has been Rust in Peace by Megadeth, released in 1990. We're going to wrap up this great playlist of this essential metal record. And it's a shame because Megadeth would follow this with even a more popular album, which even sold more, however, was kind of the gateway into them going a little too far. It was probably about the height of Thrash when they released their next album, and it was probably mostly downhill from then until, of course, the great metal resurgence in the next century, which we have described in the last episode. So anyway, let's wrap up this playlist. In a world, in a world, when most thrash metal was becoming rather bloated, along with hair metal in the early 90s, this album was a masterful effort by Megadeth. It would be their follow-up album, Countdown to Extinction, which would be in heavy MTV rotation, even heavier than this album. Like I said, Megadeth always liked videos. And I think they went too far in the next album. It had some good songs, however, most of the songs were not good. They kind of lost me there. In addition to that, Dave seemed now to be a regular on MTV. And I'm, I'm talking like regular MTV, not even Headbangers Ball, just regular everyday daytime MTV when they'd play all the crappy videos. And this never sat well with me, even back then when I was a young teenager. I think he just did anything to get his face out there. Maybe to just say, hey Metallica, look at me, I'm on MTV, you're not. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was that part of his ego that was satisfied, I don't know. But I remember him in the Rock the Vote campaign and Dave might have single-handedly, well, or helped with voting George H.W. Bush out of office because he did get young people to actually vote, which was a problem at the time. These were the days long before social media. I remember him, and never on MTV would they say, like, eh, make sure you vote for Bill Clinton, but they were saying vote for Bill Clinton, basically. That's, that's basically what they were trying to tell you. And it's, it's amazing if you ask Dave Mustaine how he feels about Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton now, I imagine he, he is absolutely no fan, but it's funny how different he was back then with his mainstream Democrat politics back then. It's funny. You know, and how, like I said, he is kind of a somewhat frequent guest on Alex Jones. And I don't think he goes too far with the Alex Jones stuff. I mean, he's not stupid. He doesn't really get himself incriminated. You know, he doesn't let you get bits on him saying like racist things or, you know, normal, normal everyday talk of Alex Jones. 
you know, conspiracy theories that uh, school shootings are hoaxes and things like that and that the frogs are gay. I mean, Dave is careful what he says. He's just talking about basic freedoms. I think Dave was a big proponent of that Obama is a dictator and he's trying to enslave us and take our guns away. I think he was a major supporter of that way of thinking. I always find it funny when rich, successful people uh, go into that mode of thinking. It's like, yes, you're very oppressed. You're rich and successful and you could pretty much do whatever you want. But yes, your president is going to enslave you and take your guns away. Totally, Dave. Totally, totally going to happen. We, Dave is just mysterious sometimes. We don't know where he's gone, but he is a born-again Christian, so you know how it goes with them sometimes. They, you can't really expect them to be rational people for the most part. So if you're a born-again Christian, give me a text, email me at herelivesmetal at gmail.com. Tell me why you're a born-again Christian and why you hate metal. Like I said before, Dave was there to essentially get 18-year-olds to start voting. That's what MTV's purpose was, you know, because basically their thing was 18-year-olds were not voting, which was true. They were not and, you know, they realize when 18-year-olds vote, they're going to vote Bush out of office. Most of them anyway. I mean, like, then again, then again, when you're 17 or 18, you kind of think in black and white. So when you're conservative, you're going to be conservative when you're 18. You don't even know why you're conservative, but you're going to be conservative, you know, because it, you know, you get to blow up stuff. That's what conservative means to an 18-year-old. Blow up stuff. Yeah, more blow up stuff. Sounds awesome to me. I'm not a liberal pussy. So that's what you think when you're 18. Did you ever watch the Morton Downey Jr. show back in the day? Well, that was a perfect example of young and angry 17-year-olds that held conservative views. That was essentially his biggest audience. It was 17-year-old men who were angry and conservative and very pro Borton Downey Jr., whatever he was bashing. So that just goes to show that young people can be conservative without really anything to back it up. It just makes them feel good, makes them get their anger out, makes them frustrated. Anyway, back to Dave. Dave, of course, liked to make a lot of videos on Countdown to Her Extinction. He wanted to even make more videos. Yet many of them were not allowed on MTV, this great beacon of freedom, simply because of their subject matter. So MTV refused to let him make videos for Skin in My Teeth, which is sort of a little bit, I guess, too suicide-y for them. And all of these Rock the Vote musicians were obviously against censorship. However, MTV will center you for their own convenience. Well, take it from Jello Biafra. MTV, get off the air. He said it back then. He was warning you of the future. He was talking about it back then. Listen to Jello Biafra, people. However, there, was other, there were other videos that they did like from Dave Mustaine. However, so, so Dave, you know, these are the people you're supporting. These are the people you protect, Dave, and they don't even want to play your videos. So, yes, Dave's strange, his strange relationship, his strange bromance with MTV was very unsettling to me back then, I remember. So, anyway, after this album, of course, and after the Countdown to Extension album, Megadeth would kind of go into a decline, making a couple more albums in the 90s, uh, Euthanasia, Cryptic Writing, Risk, and The World Needs Zero. These new records would be less, less successful than the previous ones. So as time went on, these records got less and less successful, less sales as the 90s went on and new metal was coming in and metal was just whatever metal that was left. Even Metallica at this point was in decline with their Load album. Despite this surprisingly stable lineup with Menza and Friedman, uh, Megadeth would be in a decline along with almost every other band in their original scene that they came from. And it'd be rough times ahead for Megadeth. Into the 2000s, co-founder Dave Jr., Dave Ellison, Dave Jr. Ellison was fired in 2002. That was the lowest point in Megadeth. Megadeth was gone. And Megadeth finally broke up soon after due to an injury. 
Dave Mustaine had some health problems, believe it or not. Um, he had he had an arm injury due to falling asleep with his left arm over the back of a chair. I don't, I don't know exactly how he got into this position. However, somehow his arm got severe nerve damage because he fell asleep on a chair. He had to go through a series of physical therapies to get it working again. And so it's amazing that it actually started working. I just, when he told the story, I was like, Jesus, this guy, I remember hearing that story. And I was like, this guy's a fucking train wreck. And I think he was in this hospital. Like, I think he was addicted to painkillers again because of some surgery he had. So as he was recovering, he put his arm over a chair and he got nerve damage in his arm to add insult to injury or to add injury to injury in this case. And I hadn't heard from Megadeth in a while because all their 90s albums were terrible. So that was like really when Megadeth came back into mind and I was like, what? It's like, what is wrong with this guy? You know, I thought like he was just in a decline to the grave. But, you know, now he's back. There was actually an attempt to bring back the Rust in Peace lineup during the tour for The System Has Failed. Uh, however, uh, Menza actually joined up but was too sick to play. He was not physically ready to tour, so he could not be kept. And he was replaced with Sean Drover, who played for the band for a while. Marty Friedman, of course, was not interested in rejoining. As the years went on, there would be a great revival in metal and Megadeth would take advantage of this and the band would reform. Of course, Dave Mustaine would come out more powerful and and clean and righteous than ever before. Dave Mustaine was now a born-again Christian, so he was rejecting all those previous things he did in his former life, his former life as a uh, as a sinner. So he was a different guy. Everything that every Megadeth album was mostly about was pretty much now against Dave's morals. Finally there would be a 20th anniversary of Rust in Peace, this album, in 2010. And the band announced a 22-show North American tour to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Rust in Peace, a very necessary and well-deserved anniversary. I know Metallica's been doing anniversaries for all their albums, but Megadeth hasn't really been doing that, but they chose to do it for Rust in Peace, obviously. The band performed the entire album for every show. And they even issued a new Dean guitar with Russian piece artwork, with the Ed Repka artwork, which is pretty cool. Eventually, Dave would reunite with his original bandmate and co-founder, Dave Jr., Dave Ellison, Dave Jr., in 2010, fortunately, bringing back Megadeth to its original glory. And would embark on the Big Four tour with other uh, non-thrashers, Metallica, Headlining, and Slayer, and Anthrax. And they released a new album in 2016 called Dystopia, which was actually pretty good. So Megadeth is back and in full force. You obviously can't kill Megadeth, and we are glad to see them back. It'd be great if they had the lineup. However, somehow, Dave still lives on after living the better part of his life as a drug-addicted, snarling, nasal-voiced rage fest, hell-bent on finally defeating Metallica by unleashing even more furious method of rage-fueled and guitar-powered progressive speed metal. You might say he's calmed down in his old age, as we've talked about. He's even friends with Metallica now. Imagine that. Well, you know, besides the recent feud over writing credits with Lars, which I read in the news. You know, that's business. It's not personal. Dave Jr., who is a frequent participant in the Metal Alliance touring supergroup, which is pretty cool. You get to see him. He plays along with guys like Chuck Billy, the great Chuck Billy, and Mike Portnoy and Alex Skolnick. And uh, he has hinted on a new album, possibly in 2018, so another Megadeth album. At least Megadeth is not going away anytime soon. We're losing Slayer, but not Megadeth. We still got Megadeth, which is great. 
It was Megadeth that actually called, speaking of Slayer, another Big Four, another Big Four show in honor of Slayer's retirement. However, uh, Metallica did not seem interested. I'm sure Anthrax, you know, was like okay with it, but if Metallica wasn't doing it, then I guess it wasn't happening. So sorry, Slayer. Dave tried. See, Dave's really a nice guy. Now, before we end this, what about uh, where did the, where are the two iconic members of Rust in Peace, the guys that made this album happen? Let's find out, as Count Grishnock likes to say on his uh, YouTube channel. Nick Menza, who's, believe it or not, interesting fact about Nick Menza, his father, Don Menza, is the guy that famously played the tenor sax for uh, Henry Mancini's Pink Panther theme. Did you know that? Very interesting. How do you like that? Now, Menza, of course, was an extremely proficient drummer, worked on a lot of projects following Megadeth. However, on um, sadly, on May 21st, 2016, Menza was performing on stage with his band OHM, and three songs into the set, Menza collapsed and died on stage, and it showed that it was due to congestive heart failure. He was only 51. The great Nick Menza did pass away in 2016, sadly. Marty Friedman, on the other hand, is, um, he served on four Megadeth albums following Rust until 2000. He chose to move on due to the fact that he really was getting tired of metal. He wanted to really expand his horizons. Obviously, a very talented guitar player like him is capable of a lot more than just playing Megadeth. Nothing is too much, nothing is, it's just too easy for him, I guess. But interestingly enough, Marty Friedman is now America's unofficial ambassador, guitar ambassador to the nation of Japan, where he currently lives. He is very much into Japanese culture, and he is in frequent collaboration with um, Japanese idol group Momohiro Clover Z. He seems to work with these guys on a regular basis, um, and he appears on many Japanese shows. He's kind of a celebrity over there, big in Japan. That goes for Marty Friedman. When you say big in Japan... You could think of Marty Freeman. Now, Freedom is also, was also a guest star on Adult Swim, um, Metalocalypse, where he played the uh, the driving teacher, Mr. Gojira. So, Marty Friedman is still at it. And um, that really wraps it up with Megadeth's iconic Rust in Peace. I just want to wrap it up by saying this epic lineup of Friedman and Menza, of course, would represent the most stable and most musically proficient lineup Megadeth has ever fielded. And there's no doubt. It's a fact. It's not an opinion. That is complete objective fact. So now you know this fact. And of course, knowing is half the battle. Here lies metal. Anyway, this has been another episode of Essential Metal. We shall do another one on another essential album. Who knows? Maybe we'll do Iron Maiden next. That's essential. We gotta stick to the essentials, people. Well, I wanna do essentials, and I wanna do also maybe... Like, there'll be mainstream essentials, and then there'll be maybe more, a little more underground essentials. Because obviously, just because something wasn't really popular doesn't mean it wasn't essential. I think there's a lot of albums that can fit into that. It's really just a limitless... I mean, who's to, who's to consider what's essential and what's not essential? Let me know what you think is essential, and maybe we could do it. Metal at gmail.com. Metal at Facebook. Find us. Tell me what you think is essential metal. It's very important that we do more of these shows. I have a list of albums I might want to do, but I want your help, too. I want you to think what you're... You know, and I guess we have to keep it metal. Like, don't say Van Halen or something. Obviously, a lot of metal bands are influenced by Van Halen, but we want to keep it metal. Don't say ACDC. ACDC, great band, influences a lot of metal. Don't, you know, don't say Kiss. You know, influences a lot of metal, but I want to keep the hard rock generally out of this show or it'll just get too convoluted. You know, there's a fine line sometimes, but we got to really draw the line. 
So let's stick to the metal. What makes metal? Well, I don't know. That's, that's a complicated. Maybe we make an episode on that. However, thank you very much for listening to this Essential Metal podcast. Let's get on with the credits. So once again, thank you for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast with me, Maledictus. And be sure to follow us on social media, including Twitter at Here Lies Metal, Facebook at Here Lies Metal, Instagram at Metal Lies Here, and Gmail. Contact us on Gmail. Tell us what you think. Here Lies Metal at gmail.com. I want to hear your opinion, people. And I want you to come on the show. Whoever you are and you like metal, come over here. I'll give you pizza. There's a pizza with your name on it. That's a fact. That's not a lie. It'll be good pizza, too. It'll be the best pizza. So I want to hear from you. I want some engagement from you, the metal fans, what you think. What do you guys think about the new Judas Priest album? Tell me about that. Just came out. I was listening to it today. It was kind of, eh. Sounded like, you know, an old band doing a new album, like many bands. Though more interesting than anything Iron Maiden does, I'll tell you that. It, it was more interesting than, say, that Iron Maiden, Book of Souls, whatever the fuck it was, that came out. See, bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden, it's hard for them to make... No one wants to hear their new songs. That's a fact. No, if you're... If you have these legend... If you have this legendary metal status, if you have a lot of essential metal albums, basically, which both of these bands do, it's kind of hard to make a new album these days. People want to hear Tail Gunner. They want to hear Run to the Hills. They don't want to hear your new songs. They sound like they don't like you. They love you. You guys get to fly around in the 747, okay? Driven by the singer. And there's no doubt about it. You guys are successful and will always be legends, but as for their new songs, eh, I don't think... Same thing with Judas Priest. People want to hear Painkiller. They don't want to hear anything after that. You know? Everything else is before that. It's great. Even Turbo. Just, but, you know, there's a certain point where... You know, after Halford came back, you know, after Dickinson came back, you know, it's just, it's not the same. You guys are great bands, but I, I don't really want to hear your new song. I didn't even want to hear Black Sabbath's new song, The 13. I didn't even want to hear it. I haven't, I have not really listened to it because it's an old band doing new music and I'd rather hear a new band doing new music. I don't know. It's just me. Shoot me. Anyway, let me hear about that. Hearlawsmetal.gmail.com once again. Be sure to subscribe to Hero Lives Metal on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Don't forget to rate us, even if you hate us. This podcast sucks, only you have the power to destroy it. And Maledictus, you can destroy me by saying, hey, you suck, stop doing this. Just stop doing that, we don't care about metal. We want to hear about false metal. We want to hear about Justin Bieber. We want to hear about anything but metal. We want to hear about the manufacturing of doorknobs. We do not want to hear about metal. Tell me that. And I will do a show on the manufacturing of um, inconspicuous household uh, items that are actually more very important, but however, you don't really notice them, like doorknobs and ceiling panels. You don't really notice them, but they're very important. They all are very important, just like this show. So once again, it's my passion to bring you, the listener, these tales of metal. Metal. That's how... That's how Rob Halford says metal. He goes, metal. So Rob Halford also, you know, he taught us how to, he taught, he taught us the style of metal. He taught us the music of metal. He also taught us how to say metal. Metal. It is my passion to bring you tales of metal. However, if you'd like to support this show, your donations are highly appreciated. You can do that at Patreon slash Metal. That's where you can send me a penny. 
quarter, 50 cents, a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, a hundred dollars, a zillion dollars to maledictus that here lies metal. And he will make this show better. Not that this show isn't great. What else can I do with this show? I don't know, something. I could do something with this show. I don't know, what do I need here? What do I really need here? Now you're all like, why the fuck would you send him money? I have a microphone. I have a computer here. I have recording software. I have everything I need to make a podcast. A lot of guys that are professionals do it off their cell phones. And they, and they just come out fine. I, you know, maybe some soundproofing. If I got some soundproofing in this room, I might get a little less mic echo. Because I have the sound actually bouncing off the desk. The, the desk has a very reflective surface. So anyway, I'm ranting about podcasts. You should make a podcast too, you out there. Do it on inconspicuous household items that are very important. Do it on false metal. Hey, here lies false metal. That could be your show. You could interpret and tell tales of what false metal is, wherever that is. Or, hey, how about a metal core? You could do, since that doesn't really have any place in metal, well, it does, because we're going to have to do a show on metal. We're going to have to do a show on this metal core phenomenon, which I'm kind of shady. I mean, I'm kind of confused about, because I think it's being, in, the term metal core is being incorrectly used. Um, but we'll get into that another time. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Here Lies Metal podcast once again. In this episode of Essential Metal, they shall be more. What should we do next week? I don't know, maybe another playlist, maybe a history episode. We haven't done a history episode in a while, but they're very hard to compile. We might have to start doing this show every two weeks because it's very difficult. I'm working very hard right now and my job is very stressful. And I'm and I have a I have a terrible cough sore throat right now, somehow I'm able to speak. So we might have to start doing this show. Getting very stressed out. So I might have to start doing this show every two weeks. It might be better, it might be better quality instead of rushing because it takes a while to put this stuff together like 20 pages of notes sometimes you know and I always tell myself I'm just gonna wing this one I'm not gonna write any notes I'm just gonna talk but I just can't do it I need to learn I need to better become better at improv and just have the facts I mean I have all the facts in my head I just when there's a microphone looking at me listening to me you know or there's a camera on me that evil cyclops is watching me and I can't do it for some reason I get stage I'm, I'm I'd have a better time doing it in front of actual people than these fake machines, the robots. I don't trust them. So anyway, thank you for listening to this episode of Here Lies Metal once again. See you next time. Goodbye. Thank you. Have a great week, metal fans.